Hello, I'm Anne-Marie Rooks, co-creator of the Edge Effect podcast and founder of GTB Homesteads. The Edge Effect describes a phenomenon that appears in nature where two different ecosystems meet. This junction usually displays a more vast diversity of life than the two separate ecosystems. For our use, we refer to the junction of two cultures, the dominant Western culture that does not serve all of us, and a new culture that we must all build to provide justice, equity, compassion, ecological regeneration, and peace. In this episode, we'll be chatting with John Stolmeyer. That's right. I heard I was on a I was listening in on a panel discussion about sustainability around food. And of course yeah. it was it was brought up about the food import bill. And uh, a chef who is also an entrepreneur in the group made a a, 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 a she she well the, she made an express she expressed it this way. She said we eat as if we are getting ready for winter <laughs> um, with the bread and the right. rice and all right. the grains and all the carbohydrates that we right. eat that yeah, aren't from here for, for the most right. part, some of them. Right. Uh, I thought it was rather interesting, interesting way to state it. We eat as Very if well we put. are getting ready for winter. <laughs> so not useful. Yeah, no, no, not really. at all. So getting children into nature, unstructured play um, in nature, um, yeah. connecting with people from the bioregion who know the plants. Yes. Getting plants from within the bioregion as well. So these are starts that we can make to do something about, well, certainly the most immediately, the, the most immediate um, situation, meaning food. Yeah. Food and available food, uh, children, and I suppose childcare and family, those are things that will eventually have to be looked at from the point of view of making that change from Western culture's view of how families interact to something that is more in keeping with keeping families together, which right. I suppose is something that you were thinking of when you're looking at children being encouraged to play in nature. Um, you didn't just come up with that just out of, uh, um, just out of uh, wanting something to say. You must have made some observation about children and family life that would cause you to say this. Okay, so I am. Um, I follow um, John Young. That's J O N, um, and his Wilderness Awareness Program. So it is he who has spent his whole life. He got um, introduced to nature connection as a young teenager, um, studying um, animist cultures um, and how they relate to the land. So um, it is that it is that um, background that I'm coming from that 
He has, there's another guy, Richard Louvre. He wrote a book called The Last Child in Nature. Um, and he has come up with a concept, nature deficit syndrome. He said that a lot of, uh, a lot of us suffer from nature deficit syndrome. Um, and it basically, you know, states that we function a lot better if we have regular time in nature. Yeah. Um, we fun fun function, you know, better in our own culture um, yeah. if we have that um, nature experience. Um, yeah. So yeah, that that is the background from which uh, the, where I got the information, uh -huh. um, and. I would I would like to see it happen. I um, I am quite willing to um, start a program. I have access to forest to, to bush, mm -hmm. um, and I have you know the interest and the information um, to, to start doing that. So, any families who are interested in in following this path, mm -hmm. um, you know, we can at the end of the podcast we can I'll be putting up. Um, um, ways in which, you know, sources for my information and, and uh, ways to get in touch with me so that we can pursue some of these um, concepts and, and practices. Of course, of course. I know that there was talk amongst uh, people who feel strongly about what we are talking about here, about a Bush school. I know yes. that um, Earl was discussing it uh, as an activity for Wasamaki ecosystems, possibly to undertake, but yep. um, of course we would have to um, sell it to people. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, no, it's it's a hard sell for Trinidad, you know. I would it's imagine. A hard sell. Bush, yes. bush, is, bush is a dangerous place. Yes. You know? yes. And not only that, fire is a cleansing agent. <laughs> yes, and when people see bush, they think, oh, fire, that's a good solution. Yeah, we need to burn it, yeah. <laughs> My goodness. All right. So we have, a, we have work to do then. We have work we have to do. We have minds to change. Yes. Yeah. We have minds to change. Do we yeah. have... No, I, I'm, I'm going through some of the other questions that you had suggested. And I am guessing that this one alludes to another thing that we could introduce to our new culture that we are creating. Is, uh, the question here was, how do early childhood experiences affect culture? And right. Um, answer that question. Right. Okay, so it's actually those, the infant nurture practices that are at the root of the difference between our culture and animist cultures. In animist cultures, the infant is never put down. Never, no time, ever, once for a moment until the infant decides that it is going to let go and start exploring. So whether that is one year, two years, three years, four years, five years, it is always skin-to-skin -skin contact with another human being of the tribe. Now, in a tribal culture, that is not hard because, of course, all the adolescent girls are vying with each other to hold the baby. Right, so it is not a difficult thing. And then, you know, the, the children are looked up, they are taken care of by the whole tribe. They're not, it's not a, a, a nuclear family with a mother and father in a box house, um, you know, trying to look after three children. 
you know, in, in that situation, it is impossible to actually yeah. do it. Um, so uh, things, a lot of things have to change to make that thing really possible. Mm -hmm. It actually, I mean, there, there's a gene lead, lead left for lead law or something like that. After having studied with the Yanomamo in um, Venezuela and the Amazon, she came up with something called the continuum concept, mm -hmm. which was basically this, is child rearing where you didn't put the child down. And she just created mayhem, you know. I mean, it was just so difficult for mothers to, to have to take this on when they weren't within the context of a functional tribe. Right. You know, with all the, all the other bodies around to take turns. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, but that, that is a crucial piece. In our culture, you know, if you're not um, born um, at home, you're born in a hospital you know, where you're the, the baby is taken away from the mother right away, is treated with all kinds of nasty chemicals, you know, and then is uh, wrapped up in a, a set of fabric before it's given back to the mother. And the mother is quite often drugged and, um, you know, insensitive. And so that, that initial connection is fraught with difficulties. Yes. So... And, and that is a trauma. That is a trauma that most of us, if we don't have um, access to discharge, we live our whole lives with that trauma, that initial birth trauma. But then there's the, the, the ongoing trauma then of getting put down to sleep, to be put in a crib or to be put in a pram, you know, um, that that is also, it feels like life and death. The first time you put down a child, and the child cannot actually feel the beating heart, it's tantamount to death. And, you know, um, you know the, the, the whole um, phenomenon we have of children crying themselves to sleep night after night, you know, when they have to be put in the crib at night, you know, until they figure out, well, you know, I can't, you know, the crying is not going to work. I just, they just give up in the end. They stop crying. Um, that that is what produces our culture of sociopaths and psychopaths. Yes. You know, we basically have been traumatized so deeply mm -hmm. um, and so often from very early um, by the people who are our uh, caregivers, you know, with the best of intentions. You know, yeah. they have absolutely no intention to traumatize anybody, but it is traumatic the way that we bring up children. The way, the way that we um, nurture our infants. So that segues into the notion, well, I, want, I certainly wanted to discuss this with you, and I didn't know it was, I was going to deal with it today, but we could deal with it today, of reevaluation counseling and okay, how yeah. that can help us deal with some of these undischarged traumas that you would have experienced. Right, okay. So yes, there is, I mean, there are in fact many techniques out there for um, dealing with trauma. Um, and there's this one that we're talking about, it's one that I, I, I um, was exposed to and was very helpful for me. It is a, a process, but Basically, uh, um, uh, the history of it is that a guy called Harvey Jackins had a friend who had a nervous breakdown. And so he brought him to live by him. 
his marriage fell apart, he lost his job, whatever. Um, so Harvey brought the friend to come and live with him and um, just used to go and listen to him. You know, whenever he was home, he would go and he'd spend time with him. And the guy went through a process where he cried for days and then he raged for days and then he laughed for days. And, and then, you know, he, he, he got up and he said, I'm fine. And he went back to his life. He created a, a new life again. So Harvey realized that he had seen something there and he started to work with it. And so eventually came up with what is being called revaluation counseling or co-counseling. And it's a theory that says that we all get hurt. hurt getting hurt in our culture is, uh, in, in fact, in any culture, you know, humans are going to get hurt. Um, and so the different ways that we can get hurt is there's grief as a result of loss. There's rage and frustration. Sorry. Yes, right. Rage, yeah, good. Um, and then there's embarrassment um, and, and there's fear. So these are the basics. And that we all experience these things as we're growing up. But what our culture has lost is the knowledge that crying is the discharge for grief. If we are allowed to cry as much as we need to cry, to cry and cry and cry and cry and cry and cry until we don't need to cry anymore, that that is how you discharge grief. If you don't complete the crying, you're going to still hold on to some of that grief. And that sometime in the future, that grief is going to be triggered. Something is going to happen that's going to remind you of that grief and you're going to start crying again. It means that you haven't cried out all your grief yet. Mm -hmm. And the same is true for rage and embarrassment and fear. For rage, you have a temper tantrum. You shout, you hit something, you stamp your feet. You know, you have a temper tantrum. And that discharges rage and frustration. And then for embarrassment, laughter is what discharges embarrassment. And for fear, it's cold sweat and shaking. Mm -hmm. So these are all natural processes that we're born with. But in our culture, the crying is equated with the grief. We think if we can stop the crying, we will have stopped the hurt. And that we've, so we've got it completely backwards. So what we do in revaluation counseling, we take, we, we take a, a fundamentals course, which is about a 12-week program, where we learn the theory and the practices of revaluation counseling. And then we become members of a community of people who have had taken this course so that we now have access to all these people to have sessions. And what sessions are, it's time set aside where two people or, or more, it could be three or more, um, they give themselves equal time where one will um, be the client and one will be the counselor. And then you'll switch roles and give equal time the other way. So each time you have a session, the counselor um, listens to the client um, and maintains eye contact and maintains physical contact and just holds out for them that they are completely good, they're completely powerful, they're completely zestful, loving, lovable, cooperative, intelligent, 
you know, all these things, that this is their natural human nature and that whatever feelings they're having are just feelings and they need to be discharged. And that if we can give the client a balance of attention between the reality of their goodness and their power and the present moment where they're completely safe and the feelings that they're drowned in at the moment, the grief, feelings of grief that they're remembering, that they're recalling, that by talking about them, we, we give them a new opportunity to go through the discharge process and to clean up the old hurts and give ourselves, regain access to our, our minds mm -hmm. and our complete thinking. Because what happens with the emotions is the emotions create biases in our thinking. They affect our thinking, affect our ability to be rational. Mm -hmm. I would certainly want to pursue this some more um, uh, revaluation counseling or sometimes called co-counseling um, yes. with some other people in the RC community. Uh, yeah. But I did want to address this with you because I, th I see it as part of the necessary work that has to be done to change Correct. culture. Personal, so the, work. Yeah. Yeah, the last question that you had suggested, and I wanted to just uh, end with this, is at what scale is it possible to influence cultural change? Right. So there's something called Dunbar's number. Dunbar was a primatologist. He studied primates, that is the, the, the monkeys and the apes and the chimpanzees and humans. And he came up with this number 150 based on our brain size. So human, the size of a human brain means that we can keep 150 people in our mind. We can recognize their faces. We can know who they are. We can have you know, in an intimate knowledge of about 150 people. When it gets beyond that, it's hard to keep it in our mind. So this is the scale. This is a kind of optimum scale. What you would have found in, in the period of tribal cultures is that as the um, tribe grew in size, that when it reached around 150, it would divide. You know, a group would splinter off and go and start a new um, a new colony, a new group, a new whatever. Um, so that is kind of an ideal number. We can, um, you know, it, it can be less, it can be more, but that's a kind of ideal number. I see. But the, the idea is that given the situation we're in right now, where some of us live in cities and some of us live in suburbs and some of us live in rural situations, the key is to find your tribe, your land-based tribe. So the tribe is the immediate neighbors, whether it's a city or a suburb or in a rural village, your immediate neighbors. Connect with them. Share this information. Find out who is ready to listen is interested, is, you know, would like to pursue the goal of self-sufficiency for our neighborhood. We want to be able to grow all our own food in all our backyards combined. That is including fruit trees and, you know, corn, beans, and squash, um, and 
you know, all the other various things that we can grow in the tropics, have the, all the food that can be grown in our neighborhood, start to figure out how to generate our own electricity, whether we have strong winds or we have lots of solar aspect, you know, whatever, or if we're lucky enough to have a constantly flowing stream nearby where we could have micro hydroelectric. Um, so to generate enough electricity to keep the computers running at least. Um, <laughs> um, what else is a part of that? So it's basically getting to know your ecosystem. Yes. The word ecosystem means home system. The word eco is actually the Greek word for home. So we want to create land-based, um, in other words, ecosystem-based communities. Communities that are fully cognizant of all the other species that they share their ecosystem with and how they relate to each other and how they, you know, how they feed each other. And, you know, we want to start to bring back biodiversity, bring back the food, the foods for the butterflies, for the caterpillars, you know, so that we have, you know, um, a, a biologically um, rich environment so that we have lots of things to harvest at all times of the year that is that's the goal you have been listening to the edge effect produced by jtb homesteads and global villages development consultants editing services by john francis of the legion and music by to renaissance mm-hmm.